Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we bust the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. Now, today we're going to go a little bit beyond. We are going to talk about preeclampsia, and I have with me today Dr. Carla Sandy. Dr. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is an obstetrician and gynecologist with the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. She graduated from Loma Linda University School of Medicine in Loma Linda, California in 2001 and then relocated to Washington, D.C. for her residency. After completing her residency in OBGYN at MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., she joined the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group in 2005. In addition to working in, as an OBGYN, she has held several administrative positions, including physician site lead. Dr. Sandy oversaw the construction and the opening of Kaiser Permanente Capitol Hill Medical Center and the Northwest DC Medical Office Building. Since 2013, she has been Chief of Service for the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology for the District of Columbia and Suburban Maryland, where she oversees a department of over, get this, over 90 OBGYNs and subspecialists. Dr. Sandy is a member of the Medical Society of the District of Columbia, the Board of Directors, and has been president of that organization. Dr. Sandy is passionate about reducing health care disparities with an emphasis on maternal morbidity and mortality, which, of course, is one of the reasons why I really wanted her to be able to come today and talk, because if you are not aware, this is uh, the preeclampsia month, and you might not be aware that preeclampsia is still the, and it has been for as many years as I can remember, and I'm older than Dr. Sandy, uh, remains a leading cause of maternal and infant mortality and morbidity. So we really want to talk about hypertension, which is the medical term for high blood pressure. It is the leading indicator of preeclampsia, which is a dangerous complication of pregnancy, and it is life-threatening for both the mother and the baby. So, Dr. Sandy, before we get too far here, we have all sorts of people listening to us. We have, I hope, some OBGYNs. We have pediatricians. We have family practice doctors. We have mothers, fathers. We have Americans. We have people from around the globe including those who may not have as good of a command of English as you and I do if English is not their first language. So help us, please, with what is hypertension? Now, that is a great question, and thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. 
So hypertension is the medical term for high blood pressure. That's, I think, what most people would recognize it by. Um, Very technically, high blood pressure simply means a blood pressure of 140 over 90. If you've ever had your blood pressure taken, um, been to any kind of healthcare facility, you most likely have had your blood pressure taken and they gave you those two numbers. So as long as those numbers are below 140 over 90, you are not considered to have high blood pressure. But once the number gets to 140 over 90, that's when we diagnose you with high blood pressure. One of the kind of sneaky things about high blood pressure is that you don't feel any differently when those numbers are high versus when they are normal or in the normal range, which is why it's so incredibly important to access a blood pressure machine. There are lots of places where you can get to one. It doesn't have to necessarily be a doctor's office. Mm-hmm. I've even seen them in drugstores sometimes. Oh, yes. And you can grocery just go stores. grocery store. Yep. Exactly. And you can just check those numbers and you can see where you are because knowing your numbers is the very first step in figuring out is high blood pressure even a problem for you? Absolutely. And I just want to reinforce what Dr. Sandy is saying because it has often been called the silent killer. Uh, Nobody hurts. Nobody feels bad. They just go about their business. And while we think of this as being something that affects older adults, which certainly it does or can, uh, it's a kind of a special case where it comes to pregnancy. But help us to understand first, uh, what are the different types of hypertension? Sure. So, you know, in, and I'm going to, you know, talk really in specifics with about pregnant women. Please, yes. But you can definitely, of course, have high blood pressure before pregnancy. We call that chronic hypertension. That's something that existed before pregnancy. Pregnancy had no impact on the blood pressure. But then in pregnancy, women can develop a very unique condition called preeclampsia. And preeclampsia, like bottom line, means high blood pressure during pregnancy itself. Most commonly, this would be after 20 weeks of pregnancy, which is around five months. Mm-hmm. all the way up to 34 to 36 weeks of pregnancy, which is around eight to nine months of pregnancy. So for a woman who has not had um, a diagnosis of high blood pressure, once she is pregnant and she gets to those further stages of pregnancy, if blood pressure develops, that is one of the things that we're very concerned about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes women can also develop higher blood pressure in pregnancy and it not be preeclampsia. So what preeclampsia is, is when the blood pressure goes up and then that increased blood pressure starts impacting other systems in the body. So it it can impact the brain and the heart and the blood flow to other organs. And ultimately that it can impact the mother and also impact the baby that she's carrying. So that just, um, that just, uh, describes how we sometimes will differentiate the different types of high blood pressure, depending on whether or not a woman is pregnant. Yes. So before we have every pregnant woman uh, freaking out that's listening to this, (laughs) give us give us some reassurance here uh, about what percentage of women do have high blood pressure during pregnancy. So this is, you know, high blood pressure actually is not is is not 
super common. Okay. So I don't want every pregnant woman to listen to this and think, oh my oh, goodness, yeah. this is what yeah. I'm, this is what is going to happen to me. Okay. Sure. So this really is, we're talking less than, um, 5% or so very, you know, very small numbers, um, of women. Uh, we do check all pregnant women for their blood pressure just to make sure. So even though it's not extremely common, um, we do want to identify when it happens, but I don't want every pregnant woman walking, you know, no. thinking this is, this is something that's going to happen to me. This, no, that's absolutely not, not the case. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like anything else. Some people mm-hmm. have it, some people don't. So talk to us about the risk factors. Yeah. So, you know, that's a great question. So when we look at high blood pressure, we definitely know that the older we get, the more common it becomes. So women in their late 30s and early 40s are more likely to have high blood pressure than their counterparts like in their 20s. And um, I don't know if this trend is worldwide, but definitely in the United States, we are seeing that mothers over time are becoming older. Women are having babies in their 30s and 40s, which is a shift and it's different. It's not wrong. It's just different than it used to be, um, you know, a few decades ago. So naturally, because high blood pressure becomes more common as women gets older, that's one of the risk factors that we see. Also, family history is important. Um, you know, sometimes we, you know, your mother, your grandmother, your aunties, everybody had high blood pressure. So sometimes it's hard to escape the genes. You know, we do the best we can, but you know, our family history, um, when you have a strong family history of high blood pressure, that's definitely something we can see as a risk factor. Um, race can be part of it too. We do know that it is more common in African-Americans when compared to some of the other races and, um, you know, Poor diet and lack of exercise, actually. That's one of those things that we do know, um, a diet that's um, very high in sodium, excessive alcohol consumption can increase blood pressure. We do know that people that get regular exercise, you know, walking, those types of things have lower and they lower their risk of of high blood pressure. So even though you may look and you say, oh my goodness, I'm in my late thirties. I have a strong family history. There's still things we can do to help modify those risk factors to decrease our personal risk of developing high blood pressure. I want to go to this sodium thing because I got to tell you that when I was a young nurse, it was, oh, you got to lower your sodium, lower your sodium, lower your, and then it was like, oh no, the sodium doesn't matter. And then it seems like more recently, it's been lower your sodium. So, you know, as so often, and I'm sure you've heard patients say this too, I've heard so many different things, I don't know what to believe. So set us straight on this. What is the the latest research about whether or not, and, and I would also imagine that it has to do with, I don't use a lot of boxed foods or prepared foods. So if I use a little salt at the table, I don't worry too much about it, but, uh, I do worry about whether or not this sodium is actually a factor. So what do we, what's the latest research? What do we that, know? Yeah, that's a great question. And like a lot of things, it does seem to change. You know, <laughs> I, I grew up where, um, you know, fat was, was terrible for oh, us. Yeah. And then now yeah. it's like, well, it's sugar. That's terrible. So, you know, it, it definitely, there's uh, evolution as we understand more. Yeah. Um, I think you hit it on the head when you talked about, 
the state of our food in terms of processed food. So we definitely, yes, the, the research is showing that sodium is a factor, um, but it may not necessarily be the sodium we're adding into our food, like when we're cooking. If you look at a lot of the foods that many different people consume, even around the world, they it looks very different from what our grandparents oh, may yeah. have consumed oh, yeah. um, 100 years ago, um, because we aren't, a lot of our food is processed. And processed simply means somebody took the apple and made it into an apple pie in a factory. And then <laughs> we, we bought that apple pie. And while it's lovely, if we had made that apple pie ourselves, we would not have necessarily put the same things in it. They both yeah. taste wonderful, but there's um, additives um, yeah. that come with processing. And for very good reasons, that helps food stay on the shelves longer. Natural and- preservative. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of that. But yeah, so when food is processed and we lose control of what goes in it, I think that's where some of this comes into play. And a lot of us are consuming much more sodium than we even expect because it's in places that we wouldn't even suspect. So that's where I think that's coming from. But I admit it, it can be very confusing when we're all trying to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, certainly, I just need to help people to understand that it's not just sitting at the table, putting salt on the food. It is if you are buying the heavily processed food, or I suppose even processed food, uh, that that counts. And that counts. That's absolutely part of the equation. Yes. It's been a long time since I've really gotten up on these statistics, but I'm going to gather because for as long as I can ever remember, women having their first babies are more at risk for preeclampsia. Is that still true? That is still true. You know, when we look at women who we kind of worry about that may develop preeclampsia, we, we see that women, the very first pregnancy, um, they are at higher risk. We, the, the women who are on the older um, edge and women who are on the younger um, you know, uh, sp- age the, the of having babies. Yeah. yeah, when you're looking yeah. at your, like your, your younger teenagers or some of your older moms who may be in their mid-40s yeah. um, to late 40s, those women are at higher risk. And, and one yeah. of the um, challenging things is we don't know why women develop preeclampsia. And so that makes it really difficult. Sometimes we do, we do understand who is at higher risk, but we don't know exactly what it is that causes this to develop. So those are some of the um, risk factors. Also for women who have maybe diabetes before they became pregnant or, you know, sometimes depending on, you know, kidney disease, autoimmune um, diseases like lupus, all of those can contribute to having a higher risk. Again, I want to emphasize, it doesn't mean that if you have diabetes and you're pregnant, that this is going to happen. But we do know it is a higher risk that it could. I would presume that obesity fits into that risk. Yes, I think I left that off. Yes, obesity obesity is is there too as a a, um, risk factor for preeclampsia. Yeah, and you know, I had a guest on a while ago who talked to us about exercise. And one of the things that she said was, remember that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States, say that women should have 150 minutes of exercise every week. And that doesn't mean just this woman or that woman. It means all women, and that includes women who are pregnant. Now, since you're the OBGYN, I'm going to guess that you're going to say, yeah, if you've never exercised before, don't start at 150. But 
do you, in theory, support the idea that they still need their exercise? I absolutely do. And um, I think it's very important. I think a regular physical activity that helps your heart, you know, your, your, your heart gets stronger and all of that is very important. And when you think about labor and delivery and delivering your baby, oh, yeah. um, the name of it is labor. labor. So, I often so, say it's the hardest work a woman will ever do. Work. And, <laughs> and if you are in, um, you know, if you've developed some physical conditioning or maintained some physical conditioning, during your pregnancy, it helps physically going through that labor process. You're right. I don't tell someone who's never exercised. Now, you know, I want you to get 150 minutes a week. First of all, it feels overwhelming. And secondly, I don't want anyone getting injured. But I, I do recommend, you know, even if you have not been doing anything, take a walk. Walking is my absolute favorite thing. I'm like, go take a walk for 10 minutes. That's it. That's all I want you to do today. Yeah. And then tomorrow, take a walk for 10 minutes. And when you break things down like that, you realize every, every week you get a little stronger, you get a little more conditioning. And before you know it, you'll be at 150 minutes a week of exercise. But definitely, if you've never exercised before and now you're pregnant, I would not get up and say, I'm going to run a marathon and I'm going to train. That. No, we, we don't want to do that. <laughs> Well, and you know, I frequently tell people walking is so simple. You don't need to know anything special. You don't have to have any special skills or any special training. You don't need any special equipment. Just put on your sneakers and just go out there and take a walk. And oh, by the way, you might actually clear out your head while you're there too. Uh, at least for me, and I noticed it, especially during the pandemic. Uh, I get a little nuts when I'm all by myself dealing with my own stresses, but if I can go to the Y and just kind of burn off my anxiety, I'm a whole lot better. And there's study, you know, you know that there is st are studies that show that people do better when they have more exercise, and that includes their uh, emotional status as well. But can you address this? What is there any relationship that you're aware of, any proven relationship between anxiety and preeclampsia? So, you know, I don't know of a proven relationship between yeah. anxiety and preeclampsia. I do know that mom's emotional health is extremely Absolutely. important but for I the think. whole kind of pregnancy, <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole uh, pregnancy course, delivery, you yeah. know, kind of that postpartum period when the baby's there and yeah. now you're trying to transition to being a new mom and, and um, taking care of a brand new life. And so the better place we are mentally, the better we're able to deal with the whole process of um, having a baby. So I don't know any specific um, tie-in with preeclampsia specifically, but I do know women who have good mental health and who, even if women who have anxiety that's under control, do much better Absolutely. through the whole process, even with breastfeeding, because that's a whole Absolutely. other journey. Oh, that's a whole, whole other journey. journey. <laughs> and, and, you know, here's the thing. I don't know how many hundreds of women I have helped to labor. And I have often said, you show me an anxious woman and I will show you a long labor. Uh, there is some science for that, not a lot, but I can tell you that in my, my anecdotal observations, it's the nervous Nellies <laughs> that have those longer labors. And if you can help them to just take it down a notch, 
Uh, oh, I can tell I'm off onto one of my, you're the guest here. Hold on. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think everything you're saying, it, it, may, it makes a lot of sense. And when you look at walking, you know, I think walking is such, it's an anxiolytic. It helps to decrease anxiety. It releases endorphins that encounter, that fights off all those thoughts and, you know, places that we take ourselves. So um, I'm a big fan of walking. It's free. If you live in a neighborhood that's not particularly safe for you to walk outside, go to a shopping mall, go to, you know, some kind of indoor place like that where you can just walk a lap. You know, we can find places and do this without spending, Spending, you know, hundreds and of money. many dollars to do something like that. Not, not to mention that we don't want to go to the Jeremy places yet. <laughs> Lately, I that's, know. that's I another know. whole story. But so, Dr. Sandy, you and I both know that it's really hard to prove cause and effect, mm-hmm. and by extension, then it's hard to prove that if you do this, you will prevent that. But all of that being said is what can women do to at least reduce their likelihood of having preeclampsia? So, you know, one of the things that women can do, uh, and I don't, I don't want to beat And I don't want to be exercised to death, but really prior to getting pregnant, you know, maximizing your health. And what do I mean by maximizing your health? You know, I mean, taking care as, as, as good a care of yourself as you can, you know, eating a healthy diet, you know, if you, if you do things, if you smoke or you drink alcohol, look at, you know, getting into programs that can help you with smoking, um, you know, help you decrease the amount of alcohol you're drinking. Um, and if you have any medical conditions um, like diabetes or high blood pressure or anything like that, seeing a healthcare a physician or a healthcare provider and seeing about getting those conditions under the best control that you can. You know, all of that makes a huge deal to, to decreasing your risk of preeclampsia and also simply, honestly, helping you have a smooth pregnancy. Now, sometimes women will, you know, they're like, oh my goodness, I'm pregnant. I didn't do all those things. Is it too late for me? Absolutely not. You know, so once you find out you're pregnant and you get in, you know, for care and you start care and we, you know, your healthcare team says, okay, here are the things we want to partner with you with to, to help you know, to help maximize or improve as much as we can. Those are the types of things we do because it's never too late. I just want to emphasize that it is never too late to make changes that can improve your health. One thing we have realized over the years and through different studies is that for certain women, taking a baby aspirin a day can be very helpful during pregnancy for reducing the risk of preeclampsia. So we do look and, and, you know, there are different levels of risk and your, you know, your healthcare team will talk to you about that. But in some women, we do recommend taking a baby aspirin a day. Baby aspirin um, is often used for, um, you know, uh, people who've had heart conditions or like heart attacks and stuff like that. It helps to keep the blood vessels open. And we do know that preeclampsia affects the blood vessels. Mm -hmm. So we've seen Mm -hmm. that for women with a, you know, significant risk that taking that doesn't, it doesn't harm the baby. Number one, that's the most important thing. Every pregnant woman wants to know. (laughs) The first thing, but it, it does, it does help reduce that risk. So there are a few things that we can definitely do to try to ensure a smooth pregnancy. Now, let me just interject here. For those of you who are listening, 
Dr. Sandy is in no way, in no way is she saying, go out there and swallow down your baby aspirin, okay? She is telling you that if your healthcare team is concerned, this might be one of their recommendations. She is not giving medical advice, so don't don't make any more of this than what she's already just said. But you do bring us to the medication question. And the first question that I want to ask is, can you address... The woman who, yeah, she's had preeclampsia and it's mostly been okay. And now she's in labor and she comes to the hospital. Are we still giving magnesium sulfate? So depending on a woman's condition and what's going on with her um, and her diagnosis, a magnesium sulfate is one of the medications that is used during labor. Um, magnesium is, a, it's a mineral. It is. Um, and it helps to um, prevent one of the um, more serious outcomes of preeclampsia is when a woman has a seizure during labor. And that can be also life-threatening. And so that's one of the things we don't want to happen no, we don't. <laughs> at all. We don't want seizures. So for a woman who has um, preeclampsia that requires treatment and she is um, in labor, we will give magnesium. And again, that's a question I get asked a lot. Will this impact my baby? And the answer is no, a magnesium does not do that. Sometimes women may need to take blood pressure medication. So if blood, the blood pressure is like dangerously high and it's not improving, it's not coming down. We do, one thing that I always remind women is that you have to be healthy so that your baby can be healthy. Okay. If you're not, if we don't take care of you, your baby has no opportunity because your baby is entirely 100% dependent on mom. So sometimes we do need to have a woman take um, a high blood pressure medications. They're definitely medications we use that are safe to use during pregnancy and for women who are breastfeeding and they're ones that are not. So that is a conversation we have, you know, your healthcare team would have with you if that would be the case. Um, But yes, we do use different medications to manage mom because our goal is that mom is healthy and her baby's healthy and everybody is home together healthy. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, as you're talking about um, medications for high blood pressure, immediately what jumped into my mind was labetalol. And I'm thinking that there was a study, I don't know, some four or five years ago that showed that there was a relationship. And I want to make sure that everybody hears me say, a relationship between the consumption of the labetalol and later having nipple vasospasm. And there's a couple of things I just want to interject here about that, which is, first of all, as anybody who's been listening to me for any length of time knows, I'm going to say one study does not a best practice make. Okay, so that's number one. And number two, in real life, I have seen where that does seem to have some relationship and other places where it seems to not have any relationship whatsoever. So if you can shed any light on that, feel free. But my guess is you probably you probably can't speak to that any better than I can. But 
no, I can't, you know, and I have, I don't know if I have seen that specifically. A lot of times women who um, have been pretty ill or sick during the labor of their babies, um, there often is so much going on that it's hard to tease out what exactly may be contributing to um, difficulty, say, with breastfeeding. Um, You know, I think that as a whole, the medical community is doing a much better job of, of trying to ensure that that breastfeeding initiation is, is started and is supported, even if a woman it still needs medical care and support herself. Yes. So even if she is in maybe a higher um, a level of care, like in an intensive care unit or something like that in a, in a hospital because of the medical complications she had during delivery, it's still really important to get breastfeeding established. So we can't always say exactly what may be contributing. Labetalol may or may not, uh, you know, contribute to uh, the nipple vasoconstriction, like you mentioned, but I don't know exactly. Um, But I do know that often that initiation, initiating the breastfeeding relationship can be complicated by a lot of different things, especially if mom is um, ill, you know, and we're trying to uh, make sure she gets better. But one thing I want to say about that too, and I think that we're doing, like I said, we're start, we're doing a better job than we used. <laughs> yeah, we are. But <laughs> we're not there yet. We're doing a better job. But sometimes people don't really think about initiating breastfeeding. And once mom is stable and mom is, you know, in no danger for herself, it's just time that's needed for her to recover. You know, things like breast pumping, you know, expressing, um, you know, the colostrum, things like that, you know, can be started right away. Absolutely. So that when mom is better, you know, we've already at least started the process so that it's easier, you know, to continue. You know, it's kind of like the walking. It's like, you got to take the first steps. You're, nobody's asking you to go the marathon here, but let's take it. If you don't do the first yeah. steps, how are the rest of them going to happen? I do want to back up though, for a minute to the um, magnesium sulfate. Mm-hmm. And that is every article study that I have ever read on that is totally not satisfying to me because I want to know how much of, we, we know that mag sulfate has an effect on uh, reducing muscle uh, t- uh, tone, mm-hmm. reducing muscle tone. Okay. So in theory, that can happen to the baby. But where I'm going with this is I want to know, well, how much mag did she have and for how long and all, you know, all of those factors. I have never read a study that really helps me to intelligently mm-hmm. evaluate whether or not that has an impact on uh low muscle tone. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I don't know if I've seen anything. You mean you mean in the baby? In the baby, yeah. In the baby. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if I've seen anything specifically that I understand exactly what you're asking that gets to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do know MAG is excreted or, or basically leaves the system very quickly. quickly. Um, yeah. So it doesn't um, stay around for days and days and days. Right. Um, but I don't know, you know, I don't think I have a good Well, and the other thing asking. is you've got to look at all the other stuff that's been going on. 
So this is why, you know, my husband is an engineer. He says medicine is not an exact science. Half the time, you folks don't know what you're really looking at. It's like, yeah, we really don't. It you is know, not I, cut I, and dried. I like to think of it as, you know, we 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 do the best with the information that, that we, we have, have and the patient that's in front of us. So, you know, you have to kind of look at mom, look at baby. How are they doing? You know, what's going on with all the different um, aspects? And, you know, I do want to bring this back around. You know, we're talking about pretty um, significant, uh, like, you know, preeclampsia conditions that happen to some women yeah. in pregnancy. You know, over 90 Six ninety-eight percent of women go through labor and delivery, and this Sail is not a concern. Through. This yeah, is not absolutely. a concern. We, we, you know, this is not something that happens. So again, I, I just want to keep things in perspective that yeah. that this is not every pregnancy, but definitely when it happens, you know, and when we do need to do these interventions, we we do our best to make sure that mom and baby come through, and that we're mm-hmm. able to, you know, meet mom's needs, meet baby's needs, despite you know, the interventions that need to occur. How long is it before the uh, preeclampsia resolves? And that coming from a nurse who was largely hospital-based. So, you know, after three days, five days, in the old days, it was seven days. But yeah, after that, I kind of don't know what happens to these people. So how long is it before there is some substantial, substantial resolution where they don't have to be on medicine? So, you know, we do know that the cure for preeclampsia is delivery of the baby. (laughs) Right, right. And we do know that once, so for a woman who develops preeclampsia, the condition doesn't go away until the baby's born. And for women who are what we call term, they're near their, they're at their due date or near their due date and the baby's fully developed and breathing on its own, that's not a concern. You know, they, they either go into labor on their own or sometimes labor is induced, but they have a mature baby. So it, it's, it's, it's an easy decision. Sure. For women okay. who are preterm and their babies are not fully developed, that's where yeah, things become so. a lot more difficult. More complicated, yeah. Yeah, and more complicated because now you're balancing a the baby's needs with mom's needs and, yes. and how is, how sick is mom? Is she, is she getting worse? Is she getting better? Um, but once the baby's born in the majority of cases, we see improvements pretty rapidly in mom. And usually within that first week, almost all the signs are gone. Yeah. In general, we do check mom usually within the first week or two, we do some blood pressure checks to make sure that things are staying where they should be. And um, by about four to six weeks, usually all signs are gone. Um, In some women, they actually may deliver the baby and deliver preeclampsia after the baby. And those are, those are ones we truly cannot explain. Explain at all. We, We don't know. We're, you know, you know, and they'll, they'll start maybe Defies having a logic <laughs> symptoms after delivery yeah. and we'll check blood pressures and see that they're elevated. Um, we'll, we'll definitely treat them. Um, so we do see that occasionally for a, a very, very small um, subset of patients. The symptoms can persist for a little bit, um, a little longer than a week or so, but usually the, the um, symptoms do go away once the baby's delivered and, and things come back to kind of that normal um, place where they were, um, but, you know, for a couple weeks after delivery. Yes. Uh, tell me this. 
I know that the doctor has said so, and the other doctor has said so, and the third doctor has said so, but we need you to say so too. Women worry so much about if they are taking that medicine, whatever it is, that it might harm the baby. Can you give us some reassurance here and and help us to walk through uh, why you're not worried about that? that it's more important to get their blood pressure under control. Can you help us with that? Absolutely. So, you know, it, it is, it's hard, you know, when you're yeah. pregnant, um, I've been pregnant. I didn't even want to take a Tylenol and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, know you're, you just, cause the first thought you have whenever you're consuming anything is, am I going to harm my baby? Absolutely. You know, you want to do every, we all want to do the best for our of babies course. and our children. Um, but, and there's my caveat, but <laughs> mom has to be healthy. Mom has to make sure she is okay to continue to carry or continuing carrying her pregnancy. Um, there have been decades and decades of research and decades and decades of simply experience of women using different medications to help control different things that we can draw upon. And there's some great databases available where we can look up medications and we can say, okay, this one, these are the risks, or this one doesn't have those risks and make decisions and individualize them for each particular situation. So there are definitely medications that are recommended during pregnancy. There are definitely medications we say, absolutely not. not. Absolutely not. You cannot use this medication while you are pregnant. And here are the reasons why. There are medications that fall in the middle, kind of the gray zone. And, so, you know, a great example of that is some of the medications used to treat anxiety and depression. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, oh, so that's those, another show. That's a, that's a whole other show. And I don't, mean to, I don't mean to take the show off in another direction. Oh, but you're but, absolutely right. But sometimes, you know, there are medications used to treat anxiety and depression where the um, data may not be as clear. And, you know, we have to have individual conversations and say, you know, like we have to look and say, how can we make sure your mental health is okay during your pregnancy? Because the last thing a pregnant woman needs, honestly, is to um, have anxiety and depression escalate to where she's unable to function and, and unable to you kind of get through the pregnancy itself. So I know I'm not the first to say this. I probably won't be the last to say this, but I think every medication a pregnant woman takes, you know, in a partnership with the healthcare team, thinking through why, why is it important? Why do I need to continue taking it? You may find there's some you you don't need to continue taking during your pregnancy. But the ones that are essential, especially around controlling blood pressure, or if you have like diabetes, controlling your blood sugar, you know, or whatever it is, are critical to keeping you healthy and keeping your baby healthy. Because remember, it's two of you guys that we have to make sure get there. You know, it was, I was probably in my early to mid thirties when, uh, the great Dr. Ruth Lawrence, who is a world-renowned uh, neonatologist and just, just a wonderful doctor, a wonderful human being, she said to me, Marie, it always comes down to the same thing. It always comes down to the risk versus the benefit. And as you said earlier, Dr. Sandy, there are times when we don't have all of the facts, but after we've got decades and decades and decades and database after database after database, uh, I think that we're in a pretty good spot these days to be able to make that risk-benefit decision not 
individually, but based on that information and based on what the other help parts of the healthcare team say, uh, it's it, it felt a lot flakier to me when I was young. I guess that maybe that's what I want to say. Now it just feels to me like we have got so much more data rather than, um, I, I don't know that we were ever winging it. I would not say that, but we've just got scads more data now than we ever did. I think, And, it, and it's very accessible data. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what's nice about it is that it's accessible. And so it's, you know, you, you, you and your healthcare team can partner, can look at it and can say, this is what is best for yeah. my pregnancy. Yes, absolutely. So as we're coming to a conclusion here today, I just want to say that there's a couple of things that I've really heard from you very strongly. One is there are some things that we don't know about preeclampsia, but we know how to treat it and it is treatable and uh, that that's a totally doable job. And the second thing that I've heard you say is, in, in awareness, and the second thing I've heard you say is, there is so much about diet, exercise, lifestyle. I would like to ask you, do you think that it is possible for the mother herself to be in charge of her own health? Absolutely. I absolutely do. And I think, you know, we are the experts of our own bodies. Absolutely. There's yes. nobody, we're living in our bodies. So there's, <laughs> there's nobody who can tell you more about your body than you. You are the expert on your body. And so mothers can absolutely and are absolutely in charge of their health. And I think empowering yourself, you know, getting as information that you can. I like to say partnering with your healthcare team because I see it as a partnership and not a, you know, not a, um, you know, someone telling you what to do. You know, this is a Those days are gone, Dr. Sandy. Yeah, <laughs> we, got, we got to work together to make sure yeah. that your health is, um, you know, maximized. But yeah, you, you're the captain of your ship, you know, <laughs> and you may not, and you know more about you than you think you do. So, <laughs> so, you know, time, you are the CEO of your own body. You are. And, and so you've taken these small steps or, and they may feel insurmountable, but breaking things down into smaller pieces and remembering it's never too late to start. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. You, you, you haven't, you don't have any lost opportunity. Okay. You know, this is the best day to start. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it so much. Well, this has been a very enlightening session. Thank you, Dr. Sandy. Thank you for all of your expertise and your warmth and your ability to really help us to feel reassured, but also to help us to become aware and to, you know, kind of take control of ourselves here, which I, I really believe in. So that's a long-winded way of saying I agree with you totally. <laughs> Thank so, you so much for having me. I, I truly appreciate being here today. I'd also just like to give a quick shout out to Kaiser Permanente. I have been a client in the patient Permanente system, and I've been really quite impressed with how well run it is. There is so much convenience for the client. There is so much um the way that things are integrated at Kaiser is pretty amazing. Uh, having everything, as, as my husband says, under one little roof, 
has been really, uh, really very enlightening. So I would encourage people, if you have not considered Kaiser Permanente, please know that uh, it's not available in all places. I do know that. It's it's big here in the Washington, D.C. area. It's big in California and so forth. But uh, I would say uh, do do give that a thought. So anyway, thank you to Dr. Sandy. Thank you to all of my listeners from around the globe. Without you, I would not have a show. So thank you so much for tuning in today. And every day, try to remember your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby. 